If you have your Bible, hopefully you do. If not, there should be one there in front of you uh, that you can grab out of the pew rack. We're going to be in Isaiah, Isaiah 7.14, as we've already read this morning. But I'm sure we'll read it again. Isaiah 7, verse 14. It's where you can go and, and be. Did any of you kids, are there some kids in here? Are there any kids in here who chose not to open presents this morning and wait till after church? Zachary did. Anybody else? Zachary, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's impressive. Did not happen in our house, that's for sure. <clears throat> well, we'll try to be quick for you, Zachary. All right. I think all of us, most of us, are pretty familiar with the Christmas story. I do want to run through it some before we focus on our passage today. Uh, but most of the time we go to the book of Luke and also Matthew uh, to see the Christmas story. Uh, but just to summarize it briefly, we know that in Luke, very early on there, in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, that we have a man named Zechariah and we have his wife Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah was a priest. He was doing his duties in, in the temple there, doing what he was called to do. Uh, and all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him something that he wasn't expecting because he was old at this point, and his wife was old, but says, you guys are going to have a child. But there was something special about this child, that this child was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, that he would prepare the way for this Messiah. And now Zechariah struggled with this a little bit and ends up becoming mute because of it. Uh, but uh, we see that this then begins to unfold our story. You continue on in Luke chapter 1, and we see that now there's a young woman named Mary, really minding her own business. We don't have much information of what was going on in her, her life at the time. <clears throat> but there's Mary, and an angel of the Lord appears to her and tells her, you are going to be with child, and this child is going to be the Son of God. And she has some questions as well. I've never known a man. How am I going to, how is this going to happen? It said the Holy Spirit We'll make sure that you conceive inside of you this baby. And so then we continue on. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, you see that, which we already read this morning, but you have Joseph who was engaged, betrothed to Mary, and you see his first response as I already read it. I'm going to divorce her quietly. I don't want to have to deal with this. I don't want to put her to shame either because this is not normal and so this is the path that he was about to take. But now an angel of the Lord comes to him as well and tells him, Joseph, don't do that. Take Mary for your wife, for the baby in her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph obeys that, follows what the angel of the Lord says. And so as you get to Luke chapter 2 is where we begin to read the journey that takes place for Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem because there was a census that was going to be done. They had to be registered in their hometown, which was Bethlehem for Joseph. And they go to Bethlehem, and there, we again, we know this story of how it unfolds. We're told there was no room for them. We see then that they have the baby, and that they lie him in a manger, and that they call his name Jesus. Now when this happens, and when this unfolds, as we continue on in Luke chapter 2, we see some, some interesting things take place still. There's shepherds out in the field. Uh, we get the story that angels come to the shepherds in the field, tell them what has happened, what has taken place, that they should go and they should find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying 
in a manger. And so they do this. They go to seek after this baby and they find him. Well, later in Luke chapter 2, after all that's kind of happened, Mary and Joseph take Jesus, they take him to the temple where he sees Simeon, or worse, better to say, Simeon sees him. And this is the one that he's been waiting for, the salvation of Israel. And Simeon says, now I can die because I have seen the salvation of Israel and this baby that was born. In Matthew chapter 2 is where we get the account of the wise men, uh, which we, we know that too. There are wise men who come from the east, they go to Herod, and they ask, where is this baby that is born, that is a king? We've come to give him gifts. And Herod is curious about this, right? He talks to them about this. He sends them on their way with some blessing and wants them to report back when they find him. And so the wise men eventually find Jesus and give him these gifts. But in the meantime, Herod has an issue with this. And he decrees and says that all babies need to die. And so Herod has a plot to do this in order to kill Jesus. But Joseph, hearing of this, we learn in Matthew chapter 2, flees to Egypt with Jesus and with Mary, and they hide out there until it is safe to return to Nazareth. And it is there in Nazareth where Jesus grows up. And again, you can see that in Matthew chapter 2. Now, I went through that rather quickly. And I did that on purpose because in the story of Jesus' birth, there really are many unusual events. There's, there's a lot of exciting things that happen and take place. But what we're looking at this morning is really the one thing that makes this birth so different than all the other births. Now, yeah, there's a lot of things in there that I'm sure didn't happen when you had your kids. I don't know if shepherds showed up in the room when you were there. It didn't happen with us. Uh, no kings gave us any gifts that didn't happen and take place either. And so, yeah, there were some unusual things that happened. But that's not what makes the story so special and so important for us this morning. What makes the story so special and so important for us this morning is what we've read in Isaiah 7:14, and that is fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. See, the fact that Jesus was foretold, that he would be born of a virgin, even most importantly, that his name would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the biggest story of all in this. This is the most important aspect of what we have here. If you've been here through this series in Isaiah, you have heard me talk about King Ahaz, who shows up here in this chapter as well, in chapter 7. King Ahaz is on the throne, and he still is the focal point, really, in this section. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10, go ahead and look at it with me, and I'll read through 13, because these are the verses prior to our verse today, to help us to see kind of what's going on. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, as, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? You remember this story a little bit, I hope, of King Ahaz. King Ahaz had teamed up at this point with a foreign nation when God had told him not to do this. He said, Trust me, and you will be okay. In fact, these nations who come up against you, they'll be gone in no time. But King Ahaz said, 
I'm not willing to do that. He had too much fear, and he did not trust the Lord. And what we see here in this passage is we see God giving Ahaz a chance. He's giving Ahaz another chance. And he says, ask me anything. Ask of me anything, and I will, I will give it to you. I will let it happen. And what Ahaz does here is he has this fake piety, and he quotes an old passage in Deuteronomy out of context to sound very righteous and to sound very holy, when in fact we know he is not righteous or holy. Has that ever happened to you in your life? Think about it. Think about those family members. When you call them out a little bit, and they quote some off passage, and you think, I don't even know how you know that, because I didn't know you've ever even cracked a Bible. But now they're trying to sound more holy than you, aren't they? And they're looking at you kind of saying, why would you judge me? Don't you judge me? And it's this false piety coming out of them when you and I both know they don't, they don't give a lick about the word of God. But now they're kind of spouting it out and trying to, to prove themselves in some way. That's what Ahaz is doing here. He's proven very clearly that he does not care about the word of God. He does not care what Isaiah has to say to him and what God has given Isaiah to say to him. But yet, we have Isaiah here telling Ahaz, this is what you can do. Ask God of anything. Now you might recall that God has done this before. He did it with Solomon. Ask me of anything. And King Solomon asked something good. I want wisdom. And the Bible tells us that he gave him wisdom that no man has ever seen before. Well, now King Ahaz has the same opportunity. And instead of trusting in God, instead of asking of God something, no, instead he shows his false piety and he fails the test. To where Isaiah says, not only are you wearying the people that you are king over, but now you're going to weary God as well. It is out of that then that we get verse 14. It's kind of odd that all of a sudden now verse 14 flows out of this. That the virgin shall conceive and be, behold, right there will come a, a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. This is, this is what we get after this section. Now when you think about the other parts of Isaiah, I do think it's important for us to notice that chapter 7, this is going to floor you, comes after chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, if you know anything about chapter 6 of Isaiah... It's, it's quite a passage. I want to read it for you. Uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Go ahead and take your Bible and flip back there. This is when God calls Isaiah. And I want you, as I read this, I want you to think about how Isaiah responds to God versus how King Ahaz responds to God. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. So we have in chapter 6 this complete surrender of Isaiah to do a task that is not a good task. The task that he's called to go do is go tell everybody they're bad. Go tell everybody that they're disobeying me and not just normal everyday folk. You're going to go to the king. That's the task that's about to be laid before your feet. Isaiah says, I will do it. I will go. Why? Because he had seen the glory of God. He had understood his position before God, that he was a sinner. But yet God in his great grace did what? Took his guilt away. Took his guilt away. And as a response of this understanding, all that Isaiah can do is say, I will do whatever you want me to do. Then we flip over to chapter 7. And we have the king. The king of God's people. And God says, ask me of anything. And what does he do? He quotes scripture back to God to try to put God in his place to say, no. And he will not do what God has called him to do. What a sad picture we have of this nation. What a horrible picture we have of the king and the people of God. Yet in the midst of it, God lays down a promise for us. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Now that's important. This king isn't going to do it. This king that's supposed to be ruling you, he's not going to do it. But the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the midst of King Ahaz's rebellion against God, we see a promise that one is going to come who will be God with us. One is coming is the promise here that is better than King Ahaz, better than any other kings that came before And this one to come is better. And Isaiah gives two reasons. First, he says, we'll be born of a virgin. Now, if you're listening to Isaiah and he spouts this off, this is just ridiculous to hear. Because because this phrase should not be a phrase. The virgin shall conceive. That doesn't work. (laughs) That, That does not make sense. That can't happen. But yet, that's what Isaiah says, is the virgin shall conceive. And so already, if you're listening to Isaiah, you've got to be thinking, what is wrong with Isaiah? What is going on here? And while this is a miracle, and this is something beautiful in the story of Jesus, we have to understand that it's also essential to the narrative. It's essential to who Jesus is. And that's why it's important that we go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 23, which I've already read, of when Joseph was having such a struggle with this. And the angel, the angel comes to him because in Joseph's mind, what did Mary do? She cheated on him. That's the only way a baby can happen. And so he's struggling with this. This doesn't work. But the angel comes to Joseph and says, listen, the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Take her. Take her for your wife and love her. And Joseph and his faith is much like Isaiah of chapter 6. I will do it. I will do what you've called me to do. And he faithfully then loves Mary and loves Jesus and raises him. But this born of a virgin is so vital. Because the the angel tells Joseph here, this baby had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. But what we see is we see the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, of which I've read almost every week. In Genesis 3.15, you remember, God is cursing the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, 
he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is fulfilling this here. How? Her offspring. It's her offspring. And it is. It's the offspring of Mary. Conceived inside of her. And this is important. But there's another important part here. That it was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Not of Joseph. Not of man. And what's so important about this is what this means, and I think this is a good way to put it, I was talking with Pastor Spencer about it, is this, is now Jesus doesn't fall under the covenant of Adam, which you and I do. And so what we have in Jesus is we have the ability for him to be the better Adam, the Adam that we needed, the Adam that wouldn't sin, the Adam that wouldn't fall short. You see, that's the covenant we fall under with Adam, but, but not Christ. And so Jesus could be a new covenant, a better covenant. And this is what Jesus would talk about with his disciples, about this new covenant that he was bringing in to the world. And so if you take away the virgin birth, what you lose is you lose the ability of Jesus to actually be the Savior. You lose a lot there. What we have is we have Jesus coming as fully God, which we're going to look at more in a moment, but also as fully man, as an offspring of Mary. And he does this, why? He does this so that you and I could be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God. Because there's no other way for it to be done. And this then is the greatest gift given to us in Christ. And so that's the second thing that Isaiah prophesies. Yes, we'll be born of a virgin. But it says, we'll bear this son, you shall call his name Emmanuel. This name meaning God with us. Now, there are many who would push this aside today. Uh, there are many so-called churches and religions and faith who look to Jesus as a, as a good guy. There are some who would say he's the greatest creation that has ever been created. And that's a problem. If Jesus was created, then he cannot be deity. He cannot be God, and so then our sin could not be dealt with. And that's why this is so important for us to grasp. It's so important for us to hold to the fact that Jesus is fully man, but also that he is fully God. And so in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, we see this truth come out. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's very clear there in Titus chapter 2 that Jesus is given the title of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I remember Jonathan and I were meeting with a friend of his once, and it's a friend that we pray would come to know the Lord. He's of a different faith, and I remember him telling me, if you can just prove to me that the Bible says that Jesus is God, I will fall on my face. We went on to tell him a couple places it didn't work. He didn't fall on his face. But this passage right here is very clear. Our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The truth is, is central to what we believe. Since Jesus is fully God, because of this, he is able to represent on our behalf to God. That's what he can do. He has the full deity on him, so he is perfectly wise, he is perfectly gracious, he's perfectly loving, he's perfectly kind. All the attributes of God that are God's are, are Christ's, they are his 
as the Son of God. They, they are his. And so this is why then, because he is fully God, he alone is able to mediate between God and man. He can stand in the middle of God and man to mediate on behalf of us, to deal with our dealings, our problems, to bring them before God, to make the relationship right and back to what it needs to be. See, that's not something that I can do. See, if I come before God and I'm like Isaiah, I fall on my face. Woe is me. I am a sinner. I am unclean. I am a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of people with unclean lips. I should not be here. And the correct answer that God could have gave to Isaiah was correct. Get out of here. Shouldn't be here. But we already get that picture of God's grace there in Isaiah 6. It's the same grace that we've been given. But we haven't been given it because of our cleanliness. No, we've, we've been given this grace because God has dealt with how dirty we are by the perfection of Jesus. By the perfection of Jesus. And so again, yes, we, we see he's, he's fully God and he can be our mediator because of that. But also, he was the one and the only one as being fully God who could bear the wrath of God. You picture, and we talked about this some last week, Jesus on the cross. And when he would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's at that moment you've got to realize that he is bearing all the weight of my sin and your sin. The, the weight that you and I are supposed to feel. You know, you know that weight that you feel sometimes when you do something wrong and it doesn't just inconvenience you? All of a sudden, you got to stare in the eye all the other people it's inconvenienced. And the shame that you feel for that, the weight that you feel for that, it's this weight that was thrown on his shoulders. And God the Father would look upon him as the sinner, him as the unrighteous, and he would bear that in himself. And no man can do this. Only God can do this. But because Jesus is fully God, he did it. And he did it perfectly. All the way to death. And our question then would be, well, how can God die? Well, God doesn't, does he? He dies. But death don't hold him. Death cannot hold him because he's sinless. He's perfect. Death's not allowed to hold him. The wages of sin is death. He doesn't have those wages. And so we see him rising again. You see, all of this can only happen because he is fully God. If you, if you try to take that away, we lose everything. We lose everything. Then we're just people here talking about a good guy. That's all we're doing. And we're wasting our time. But we're not here today to just talk about a good guy, are we? We're here today because his name is called Emmanuel. God with us. And it's not just some name that Mary and Joseph thought would be pretty. Some name that they just wanted to attach to him to say, look at, look at our kid. We gave him such a great name, Emmanuel. No, it was a name given to them from God. This is what you are going to call him, Emmanuel, because he is God with us. So we see that importance of him being fully God. But as I mentioned earlier, he's also fully man, being of the, of the offspring of Mary. 
In 2 John chapter 7, it says, For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. It's interesting, is it not? That already in 2 John chapter 7, John is having to deal with heretics who are claiming Jesus never really came in flesh. Because they're struggling. How can someone be fully God and fully man? Either needs to be not God or needs to be not man. And John is laying out for them very clearly, oh no, this Jesus Christ came in the flesh, dwelt among us. So John is dealing with those who deny that Jesus is a man and he's already labeling it a heresy. And we know in John chapter 1 that this same John who would write that would pen what we have in John chapter 1 of the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God who always was and always will be puts on flesh to live with man, to become 100% man. And we know that Jesus had to do this in order again to mediate for us, in order to stand in our spot. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 15. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, the perfect man, sinless in all his ways, yet able to sympathize with us completely. One that we can go to when we're struggling, when we're hurting, because he knows exactly what that means and what that's like. Because he wrapped himself in flesh to dwell among us. And then as the God-man, he was able to be the sacrifice we needed to appease the wrath of God, as I mentioned earlier. And today as we sit here in this room, as we celebrate Christmas together, as I'm sure you'll go off with family and friends and do whatever it is you do on Christmas, at this moment, this exact moment, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, sits at the right hand of the Father. And do you know what he does as he sits there at the right hand of the Father? He reigns as your king and he reigns as your mediator. This morning, as you're busy doing whatever you were doing, getting caught up right in the hubbub of Christmas, which we all do, and I think there's a lot of fun to that. I'm guessing for many of us in this morning, maybe we forgot to spend some time praying before we came here. Forgot to maybe wake up and spend some time confessing to God who we are and thanking Him for who He is. Maybe, maybe you forgot to do that this morning, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to judge you, but I'm saying this to hopefully bring some comfort to you. When you forgot all of that, right now at the right hand of the Father is Jesus interceding for you on your behalf. That's how much he loves you. Though we often stray, though we often forget him, though we often twist and turn things to be for our favor and for our benefit and pushing him aside, because it's him who did the work, because he's our Savior who loves us and has brought us in, He continues to intercede for you each and every day. To voice to the Father prayers on your behalf. You know, I think it's always funny when people call Pastor Tim to pray. 
I'm like, why me? Well, you're Pastor Tim. Well, my words are any better than any of yours. They're probably worse. It's probably not even grammatically correct of what I'm saying. But there's, there's this aura of like, yeah, but if the pastor's praying, there's a special something there. I've got to tell you, there's no special something here because it's Pastor Tim. Now, do catch this. There is a special something there because it's Christian Tim. There's a special something there because it's, it's Christian you and the Father hears us. But what's so much better than Pastor Tim praying for you is right now, Jesus Christ himself is praying for you to the Father. And he does that because he's Emmanuel. God with us. He knows exactly what you're going through. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to live in this place. To see the struggles and to deal with temptation. Jesus knows exactly what it's like, but he's the only one who's conquered it all. He's done it perfectly. And there he is. Praying for you. Father, be with them. Father, help them to see how good you are. Father, help them to see the love that you have for them. Father, help them to see that your plans are better than all of their plans. Father, help them to see their sin and to deal with it. Father, help them to love you more than they love the things of this world. These are the things that the Son continually voices on your behalf. And what great love it shows to us, isn't it? What great love that shows to me. You see, there's a lot of people in my life I would like to think love me. I would like to think that they, that they care for me. But they don't answer the phone every time I call them. And it ticks me off. It frustrates me. There's one, I bought a watch to purposely buzz when I called that person so they would know it without an excuse. Still, no answer. Doesn't come. It's frustrating. I would like to think that the people in my life love me enough to at least pray for me at least once a day. I'd like to think that the people in my life would love me enough to give me some encouragement every single day of something. Do you feel that way as well? I feel that way. But guess what? That doesn't happen. And I don't do it for the people I love either. It's because I'm not perfect. It's because I fall short. It's because I, I just I can't think that often. I, I just I, I, I can't do it. And you can't either. No matter how much we try to love and care for each other, it's still an imperfect love because of our human nature and sin. Yet the gift that God has given us in Jesus is a 100% perfect love. My name and your name as a child of God never ever leaves the mind of our Savior because he has the ability to do that as God. He's always thinking of you. He's always caring about you. He's always loving you with a perfect love. And he's promised to never stop that love. And that nothing will ever separate you from that love. Isn't that an amazing thought? In our imperfection, we just can't do it. But he's done it for you. And I hope that this morning, you are resting in that perfect love. 
Don't find rest in the things of your family, which are going to be great, I'm sure. And that's fine. Don't find rest in your children or in your parents or in your sports or in your academics or in your job or in how much money you have because those things will fail. We find our rest. We find our peace, our hope, our joy, our love in Emmanuel, God with us. Let's bow together. Let's pray this morning. And after I pray, we'll sing a song for you to respond to the word of God today. God, we thank you that you have done what we cannot. And it's undeserving. We are the sinners. We are the ones who fell short. We read back in Genesis of Adam and Eve falling short. And yet all the way back then, you had a plan when you told that serpent, oh, you'll bruise his heel, but the, her offspring is going to crush you. And Jesus has fulfilled that. God, this morning, for those of us who've been a part of the family of God for a while, we thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for not leaving us. Thank you for being there for us, even when we seem to push you aside. God, you continue to pray for us. You continue to care for us. You've sent Jesus for us. We thank you for that. God, I pray for those here this morning who've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. I pray that they would see this Christmas morning the truth of who Jesus is, that you'd open their eyes to that, that they would trust in you for the first time. God, you continue to move, you continue to work, you continue to do what you've told us you would do, that your word does not return to you void and empty, but you continue to save people by your great grace, and we thank you for that. We pray that for our friends and for our family members who are lost, that you would help them to see the great love that you have for them. Open their eyes. Shield them from Satan and his lies that are so often told to them so that they can see the truth of your love. God, as we get ready to sing this last song, I pray that we would worship you with it, that we would sing it and mean it and honor you with it. And so God, be with us as we worship you now. Help us in that even, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.